today, the average house is leaky to the point where the entire volume of air in the house is exchanged once an hour. In the old farmhouses with no insulation, it was more like two and a half to three and a half times an hour. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 128 with Brad Cook. Figuring out the right insulation for your tiny house can be one of the most confusing things about designing and building your own home. And if you're working with a professional builder, there's no guarantee that they know what they're doing either. That's why I'm excited to introduce you to Brad Cook. Brad is an energy efficiency professional who offers a wealth of knowledge about insulation and ventilation when it comes to tiny houses. In this conversation, we'll nerd out about insulation and common myths about heating a tiny house. Oh, and did I mention Brad is actually a tiny house instructor? He co-teaches the tiny house design build courses at Yestermorrow, so he's really a wealth of information. Stick around. But first, I'd like to give a listener shout out to Shara454, who left a great review of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast in Apple Podcasts. They say, thank you, Ethan, for another great show. I've been listening to Ethan's podcast for over a year. I even listened to some episodes more than once. I'm always learning something new about tiny homes and the lifestyle. Well, Shara, I really appreciate it. And as I've said before on the show, your ratings and reviews really helps the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast grow and find new listeners. So if you'd like to help out, please rate and review the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast in whatever app you use to listen. Oh, and if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the show so you get the new episode every Friday morning when it drops. All right, let's get on to the show. All right. I am here with Brad Cook. Brad is the owner of Building Performance Services, LLC, a home performance contracting company that has won several awards for excellence in improving the comfort, safety, and energy efficiency of homes and small businesses. Since 2006, he has earned several certifications, including BPI's Healthy Home E-Evaluator and HRAI's Residential Mechanical Ventilation, and he has installed many ventilation systems. In 2017, he returned to the Yestermorrow Design Build School as their part-time facilities manager, where he has also been lecturing to several different courses on HVAC, plumbing, and thermal subjects, and has worked with three courses in the design and construction of their tiny house projects. Brad Cook, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Um, huh, where to start? I think... Um, I would love to start with just talking about some of the issues that you've seen because you're 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 a, you're a cool guy at Yestermorrow. You're like the fix-it guy who who seems to have you know your hand in a lot of different pots. And uh, I think the last time I was at on campus for a course, you were tearing the floor and subfloor out of a tiny house. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what you were doing and why and what went wrong? 
So this was the second tiny house um, constructed that I was involved with in it, Yes Tomorrow. It was one that we did not have a full set of plans um, before we started constructing. And that was because we had a client lined up that backed out at the very last minute. So the design was more by committee and almost true design build. And was with many Yes Tomorrow courses, they tried to incorporate a couple of different classes, including a cabinetry class that had constructed some built-ins, built-in cabinets for this tiny house. Um, so the basic construction was an 8 by 24 with stud walls. And we did some different kinds of insulation in the stud walls, um, more for demonstration. Uh, one wall had, one area of the wall had rock wall bats, one had fiberglass, and one area we put um, what we call insole web. It's a breathable fabric up against the studs and then dense packed the studs before we put the finish on. Um, and then down in the shower area, I actually put in rigid foam and sealed it um, because we have water pipes on an outside wall. And the trailer, when it arrived, it arrived with a steel pan underneath. And I hired a company here to come and spray four and a half to five inches of what we call spray polyurethane foam, SPF. It's a two-part foam. It's closed cell. The closed cell means that when the two parts meet, the, the foam expands, but it doesn't expand so quickly that the little bubbles burst. Because if it expands a lot and those bubbles burst, it's called an open cell foam. Open cell foam is less density and can allow water vapor through it. Whereas the closed cell foam is denser and it, it's a vapor barrier if you have at least two inches. So they sprayed that. They went ahead and they built the, put a floor over this um, steel frame. And they said, well, gee, you know, maybe we have this thermal short circuit between the framing of the wood and the steel. So let's put a little bit of blue board or expanded polystyrene down. So they covered the whole frame with S. Someone had mentioned something about maybe adding some cellulose. And I said, no, 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 you don't want to do that. But somewhere along the line, somebody put a bunch of loose cellulose to fill up between the spray foam and the polystyrene because the spray foam doesn't come up absolutely flush with everything. In order to do that, you'd have to be shaving it all with a saw because you can't spray to an exact level. So um, the quick, the short of it is they built a two-by-four uh, floor on top of that. They asked me to do the plumbing. I had no design. Um, we, we finally had to get some details on where the shower was going to be, the sink, the kitchen sink, and the toilet was going to be composting, so that wasn't a problem. So I basically designed and installed all the plumbing 
underneath before underneath this floor um, before the final plywood was put on. And after the whole thing was done, it was sold to a client. The school sold this almost finished, not quite finished, tiny house to a client. And they decided they didn't want a composting toilet. They wanted to put in a regular toilet. So they sent their plumber over to find out what's underneath the floor. And they wanted me to cut it open. That's when I discovered that all of that cellulose was not only soaking wet, but the water had pooled and was sitting down there. And some of these bays were underneath all the new cabinets that were built in. So it took me a couple of days to open up a lot of this floor and get the cellulose out, the soaking wet cellulose, and dry everything out and put it back together. And what was the source of the water? The source was the water detail, and I had raised this concern early on, the water detail at the fender. So the floor, the walls, the floor passed around the fender. The walls went up and over the fender. And there was no water detail to keep the water from going right underneath the wall. And that's what happened. We had some good rain. It hit the fender on the outside and went right inside. Um, I subsequently did seal that using um, belt and suspenders, using a aggressive caulking and um, an, uh, what's the word? Um, a water barrier tape, self-adhering tape. Um, and then made sure that the next rain before I closed up the floor, it actually worked. Made sure that it didn't leak. Yeah. So, or go ahead. So that's, it, it was actually, you know, I've been kind of active on, on your blog. And that has come up about insulation in the floor. And one of the questions was, what kind of insulation do we put in the floor? Do we need to provide drainage? And so on and so forth. So this is always the conundrum with insulation. Every insulation has its own properties. The reason that I would prefer the spray foam is it's a, an air barrier. It's a vapor barrier. And very even if you didn't have that metal pan, it's very rare for rodents to try and claw their way through spray foam or any kind of rigid insulation. Um, with any other kind, you have the possibility of warmer, moist air migrating through the floor through that insulation and hitting the underside and condensing, hitting the dew point if you live in a colder climate. If you live in the tropics, it's almost the other way around. If you use air conditioning inside the tiny house in the summer, you're going to make it a lot cooler than outside. And if you have an air or vapor permeable insulation, that moisture can find its way through the insulation and hit, for example, a cold floor and condense and make the insulation wet. So the closed cell works best in both directions, no matter what climate you're in, 
it definitely stops moisture. It definitely stops the, the heat flow. Yeah, and that's something that I don't think a lot of people really think about when they're thinking about an insulation. I think most DIY builders get hung up at our value and they probably stop there. Well, when it comes to our value, what, what I see is many tiny houses being built with two by four walls and maybe a two by six wall and then putting in um, fiberglass, um, wool, rock wool, cotton, um, sheep's wool, insulation, other kinds of air permeable and moisture permeable insulation. And with a lower R value than the rigid insulation. So spray foam has an R value of about seven per inch. Most of your other insulations are in the are about half of that. And if you look at the current energy code, walls for a typical house should have an R value of at least R25. So that's three and a half inches of spray foam. Um, that would be seven inches of any other type of insulation. You could do a little bit less in the stud bay and do, even if you did one inch of extruded polystyrene over the whole outside, that improves performance because every one of your studs is a short circuit. The wood stud has got an hour value of 1.1, 1.2. And the just that one inch of extruded polystyrene, the blue board or pink board, will cut down a lot of heat loss. And the way our value works is it's, it is how well something is resistant to the flow of heat by conduction. So heat moves by conduction, convection, and radiation. So conduction is through a solid. Convection is by a moving air mass and, or water mass. And radiation is from a surface line of sight. So we're most concerned with, with the conduction, and that's what the R value treats. So if you have an R value of 2, you're theoretically stopping or cutting the rate of heat transfer, heat loss through the wall, in half. If you double the amount of insulation and go to R4, you're now cutting it in a quarter. So you've only improved, the first one was you've cut it in half, now you've cut it in a quarter. If you add another, if you double it again, each increment that you add, you're, you're saving less and less energy. Yeah, this was something that, that you taught me. I think you have a, a graph that, that just illustrates it visually, that you can see that you know, it's, a, it's a line that just gets less and less steep and never approaches the axis. And it's like, the more insulation you add, the less and less and less it's doing for you. So is that R25 kind of a sweet spot? It's, um, it's set by, it's an international standard. Um, it keeps changing. That is the uh, international um, energy code um, adopted in 2016. 
So that's the, the 2016 standard. I believe the 2012 standard, which a lot of states are using, was um, R21 in the walls. Um, so it, it does vary, depends upon what code you're using. Here in Vermont, we tend to be rather progressive in energy efficiency, as well as California. So we're, Vermont is one of the earlier adopters of updated codes. So for walls, it's a minimum of R25. For a floor that overhangs the outside, like on a tiny house trailer, it's an R30 in the floor. And for a ceiling, it's an R49. So I see a lot of tiny houses, you're limited to that 13 foot, six inch above the ground. So you want as much room as you can. So a lot of people skimp on the roof rafters. And typically I see two by sixes, maybe a two by nine. And you really can't get that much insulation in those roofs. Oh, I know. I'm two by four all the way around in my tiny house. And it's the floor is quite quite chilly in the winter it's three inches of spray foam all around so it's about r21 but with studs and no thermal break it was my first house the steel is a big big um short circuit oh yeah um so that's the advantage of doing the two by four floor on top of it doesn't even have to be two by four it could be two by threes but it just gives you that airspace to separate your floor from the steel frame. Right. And a lot of trailers now are coming with a welded belly pan. And so you can drop rigid foam first and then put the floor studs on top of that. So the caveat about, you know, some people want to be do it yourself and don't want to hire a contractor to come in to spray the foam. Mm -hmm. And we'll just take and cut up pieces of blueboard, drop them in, and, and we'll be done. Here's the problem. If, if you don't seal all around that blueboard so that you're warm, we're talking relative, your relatively warm, moist air can find its way around any gap or crack, once it gets around, it's going to condense because it's hitting the dew point. It's cooling down to the dew point. You now have liquid water, and if you've got a steel pan underneath, it's got nowhere to go. It's going to rot it out in no time. So you just you introduced another concept that I was hoping to have you explain in this interview. So relative humidity and the dew point. Um, can you give a, a explanation for dummies? Yeah. Yes. So. Um, a, a chunk, think of a chunk of air at a certain temperature and a certain pressure. Normally, we worry so much about pressure because air pressure doesn't change a huge amount generally. But pressure and temperature are the two factors that determine how much water vapor, water in vapor form, can be held in that chunk of air. So let's say um, you take a chunk of air. I, I like to use some round numbers that people are familiar with. You take 80-degree um, air 
80% relative humidity. And we're going to have some at the end of this week. If you're down south, you've already seen it. Um, 80 degree air at 80% relative humidity. If you cool that down, the relative humidity goes up because when you cool it down, the air becomes less dense, uh, more dense. It shrinks. And it's because the actual air molecules and atoms have less energy. As the temperature goes down, the molecules have less energy, so they're pushing up against the air less and less, so the volume shrinks. As the volume shrinks, you've got the same number of water molecules, so the relative humidity goes up. As the relative humidity goes up and the temperature drops, for 80 degree, 80% 80 relative humidity, when that hits the dew point, which means it can't hold any more water vapor, that's 100% relative humidity, when it hits that dew point, that is at, I think, 74 degrees for 80 degree, 80% relative humidity. In a typical house, if you have a basement, it's going to be browned or below grade, it's going to be cooler because the earth is typically at 50 degrees. That's going to hit a cooler surface and it's going to condense into water. And then it's going to promote so, mold. So it really doesn't take that big of a temperature drop. Like you, the example you just gave is between 80 degree air at 80% res relative humidity. When it, hit, when it gets cooled to 74 degrees, it's going to hit the dew point. But let's go to the other way. Let's go in the winter. So a lot of people think that um, wood stoves are dry heat. They're not. Um, back uh, a century or more ago, people didn't have much insulation, if any, in their walls or their floor or their roof. And they heated with a wood stove. So the houses were so leaky, so drafty, that the heat would escape. The air would escape. And when it escaped, it took any moisture with it. And today, the average house is leaky to the point where the entire volume of air in the house is exchanged on the average of about once an hour. Back in the old farmhouses with no insulation, it was more like two and a half to three and a half times an hour. So when that warmer air takes the moisture out of the house, it's sucking in cold air from outside. Remember, the colder it is, the more dense the air. Dense air can only hold so many molecules of water in vapor form. So if we take 10-degree um, air at 100% relative humidity, it's holding all the moisture it can, bring that in, and start warming it up with our wood stove, that's going to expand. And as it heats up, it's expanding, so the relative humidity is going down. When you heat that chunk of 10-degree air at 100% relative humidity up to 70 degrees, the relative humidity drops to 10%. And that's fairly nosebleed dry. So that's why they would put a pot of water on the wood stove. In reality, today, 
that could be a factor. But it's not that the wood stove is dry heat. It's the wood stove when you've got a good fire going. That is your hot flue gases are going chimney at a pretty good clip. And it's almost equivalent to running your kitchen range hood at 300 or more cubic feet per minute, blowing air out of the house and sucking in cold outside air from any gaps or cracks. So yes, to some degree, it may be dry heat only because it's acting as a fan. And it's like leaving your range hood fan on all the time without the wood stuff. So we want to be careful to avoid the dew point in cold climates in our envelope. Um, that's why we talk about vapor barriers. So it used to be they were really gung-ho about back in the 70s and the 80s. Oh, we got to put this plastic vapor barrier on the inside before we put up the sheetrock. And this is with, of course, of course using fiberglass bats in the, in the stud base. So it turned out that contractors would do that, and then they'd still get water, particularly at the ceiling where wall meets the ceiling on the upper floor. Well, the problem is, it turns out that you can have more moisture passing through an exterior wall around the gap of one outlet or one switch than all of the sheetrock of a 20-foot-long living room wall. So it's the air infiltration that's far more important than the vapor barrier. It's the air sealing. In cases where it's difficult to air seal, then you need to look at make the outside of the wall so it can't see the dew point. And one way to do that is do rigid insulation on the outside. Even if that one inch is a, any vapor won't go through the rigid insulation. So as long as the inside of that rigid insulation stays warm enough above the dew point for whatever your relative humidity is, you're, you're okay. So that's why you also need to control the relative humidity in the house. And that's where ventilation comes in. Yeah, so let's let's talk about ventilation because that is kind of your first, well, actually, I, I'm not sure, but that seems like that is your primary, the primary work that you do in your business. Yes, well. Energy efficiency. I am doing a lot of, a lot of ventilation. Um, I'm running into, actually, I'm running into more people that have heat recovery ventilator or heat energy recovery ventilator systems installed, and they don't work right, or they don't know how to use them, or they weren't maintained. But yes, I've been putting in a bunch of fat fans, heat recovery ventilators, and occasionally energy recovery ventilators into two houses. I got one coming up next next week. Um, so we, what we want to do is make our house tight and ventilate right. You can't build a house and say, I only want to build it up to this exact tightness. You can't do that. I mean, I've gone into houses and I say, oh, I think this is a pretty tight house. I do my blower door test and it's actually quite drafty, quite leaky. And I've gone into houses that, oh, this is a 1930s house. Hmm, 
nice condition, but 1930s, no. And I'm surprised. It's actually rather tight because they did such a nice job on the original plaster job. So you really don't know how tight it is until you test. But the idea is make it tight and you control the vinyl ventilation. You don't want Mother Nature to be ventilating in a howling windstorm when it's 10 degrees below zero. Um, you want to shut off, be able to control the ventilation so you can shut it off when it's that cold and windy and turn it on when, you're, when it warms up a little bit. You want to be able to control ventilation when you are producing a lot of pollutants, including moisture. So you want to have a range hood over your cooking area so that when you're, when you're cooking, particularly with oils, you're putting a lot of pollutants in the air. You want to get rid of those pollutants at the source. Um, your bath fan, you want to put in a bath fan so that when you're taking a shower, you're getting that moisture out of the house at its source. You're not waiting until it mixes with all the air in the house and it's already diluted. And now it's going to take a lot more work to get that moisture down. Keep that relative humidity at a reasonable level. So speaking of relative humidity, um, I often give my clients a an inexpensive temperature relative humidity meter, and I put a little tag on the top. And I recommend that you keep your relative humidity between about 30 and 50% in the winter. So when the house is all sealed up and it's cold outside, if you keep your relative humidity below 50%, roughly, in most cases, unless you have very shallow walls, and a lot of air leakage, in most cases, you will not have condensation under most circumstances. You know, if the weather happens to dip to 20 below zero and it's hitting the dew point in the wall, I wouldn't worry about it if it's just for a short period. It'll recover. But if the dew point is at 10 degrees at your 50% relative humidity inside, that could be a problem. So I use that as a guide. 30% is the comfort level. And as you go lower on 30%, go down to 25 or 20%, it's typically not as comfortable. Um, with a 30%, you can actually feel warmer with a lower temperature. So as the relative humidity goes down to 20%, you have to crank the temperature up a few degrees to feel as comfortable for whatever that level that is for you. Because, of course, there's some people that never feel comfortable unless the temperature is at 73 degrees, and others are absolutely fine if the room is at 63. In the winter, when it gets really, really cold out, down to the 10 degree, the zero degree range, then you might want to ventilate a little more, get your relative humidity down more like 20%, or you will end up with condensation on your windows. And if you can't, if that is persistent, you're going to start having mold growing. And, and if there would, they'll start rotting and all, all those kinds of issues. So I'm curious, what are some kind of mitigation techniques that you recommend? Like if somebody who's in a tiny house is saying, hey, I'm getting condensation on my windows, you know, all the time. Every time I cook or every time I take a shower, would you 
first kind of look to, okay, let's install a range hood, let's install a bath fan before going to like a whole house type ventilation system? Um, for a tiny house, I don't think I'm, I don't think that, well, they're starting to come out with some smaller heat recovery ventilators. A heat recovery ventilator takes the outgoing warm air to heat up the cold incoming air and recapture some of that thermal energy. Typically around 70 to 80% of that energy is recaptured. So that's the advantage of an HRV. An energy recovery ventilator transfers moisture and they are not recommended for cold climates. There are some models. Um, there's two kinds of ERVs, and the kind that actually has an enthalpic core um, are, will work up in this area, but there's no big advantage to using an ERV versus an HRV in cold climates from everything I've read. ERVs are really appropriate for warmer climates where you use a lot of air conditioning in the summer, um, where you want to get that incoming air. You don't want to bring all that moisture in. So the ERV will transfer that moisture to the outgoing airstream or some of it to keep you from sucking in a lot of moisture, which will raise your relative humidity and you'll get condensation in the house. I recommend everybody buy a, an inexpensive digital temperature relative humidity meter. I'm a fan of Accurite, A-C-U-R-I-T-E. They have one that um, you can find in stores for around, around 10 bucks, 12 bucks. You can buy right from Accurite for 12, 13 bucks. But if you don't test, you guess. I find that when I, I buy a bunch of these at a time, put a battery in, and put them on a shelf in the middle of my house. And I find that they're quite consistent. The temperature is always within about a degree mm -hmm. and relative mm -hmm. humidity is within a couple of degrees. So they're pretty accurate for our purposes. So you want to monitor your relative humidity. That's number one. Number two is, yes, put in some sort of a fan for your cook cooktop and put in a, a bath fan. So for bath fans, if you're going to just do the bath fan, Panasonic makes one. It's 70 cubic feet per minute, which is an appropriate size. It mounts through the wall, and the motor is actually on the outside. It's in the hood. It's meant for the wall. A lot of your bath fans are meant only for the ceiling. And in a tiny house, that's a big constraint. So all you need to do is get some electricity to this fan, which is probably not too hard to do. I mean, even if you had to use wire mold to come off an outlet or something and then do a switch. Sure. And so then you've got this fan in the bathroom that's quiet because the motor's on the outside and it's able to get rid of that moisture from your shower right at the point, right at the source. Yes. So it's recommended that you run if a bath fan is installed fairly close to the shower, particularly higher on the wall, 
And if you run that bath fan during the shower and for at least 20 minutes after the shower, you will essentially remove all of the moisture generated by that shower. What do you think about those uh, bath fans that are automatic, the ones that kind of sense humidity and turn themselves on? They're great. So there's a couple of ways to do that. Panasonic, I'm a big, big fan of Panasonic. Um, and again, almost all of their bath fans are for ceiling mount only. Um, they, if you can fit one in your ceiling, that's great. They can come, um, they now have what they call the um, Whisper Green Select. The Select allows you to select different ways to control it. You can plug in a two-speed controller. I use this often where they want to use the bath fan for continuous ventilation. And this two-speed controller, you can set what, how many cubic feet per minute you want it to run at all the time. That's the low speed. And that might be 20 or 30 CFM, depending upon how big your house, your area is. And then the second speed is either turned on by a switch or you can plug in like a motion sensor. A motion sensor will sense motion, kick it onto the high speed and keep it on high speed until it stops sensing motion and then for another 20 minutes. Then there's also a condensation sensor. Unlike a lot of fans, this is not a humidity sensor, it's a condensation sensor. So it looks at the dew point. It's looking at not just relative humidity, but what is the temperature. So it's a little smarter than a humidistat. You can also buy aftermarket controls. I mean, you could put a box in the wall and, and put in a humidistat, which sets on humidity, relative humidity, or a motion sensor. Other than that, I think of the other brand name, Fantech. Fantech makes inline fans and wall-mounted fans. They make wall-mounted fans that you can duct inside. You'd have to install a separate controller. What I might recommend, though, is if you're living in a tiny house and you're aware of your environment, I suggest a one-hour, zero to 60-minute rotary timer switch, preferably with a hold feature. So take a shower. If you can give that a half a turn, that's 30 minutes. A typical shower is about 10 minutes. So you got your 10 minutes and then 20 minutes after you're done. Um, the hold feature is... Somebody really stunk up the bathroom or cooking or whatever, you can put it on hold and just keep it running. So, but I think that the Panasonic wall fan, the 70 CFM, will work in for a lot of people. I don't, I am not a fan of the Lunos ventilation system. And those have gotten, those are kind of hot in the tiny house world. Why not? They are, and I don't understand why. Number one, they are a little over a thousand, got eleven, twelve hundred dollars for a pair of them. So they have to work in pairs. They're rated at 10 CFM that you can boost to 20. So if we look at ventilation requirements, this is something else that keeps changing. They keep updating 
and ASHRAE, American Society of Heating Refrigeration Engineers, sets the standards. And currently, um, pretty much the standard has been for well over a decade, uh, probably two decades, is that every person needs about seven and a half cubic feet per minute of fresh air, continuous. So the standard right now is built on how many bedrooms you have. Um, the first bedroom you count as two people, and each subsequent one is another person. But if you have two people living in the tiny house, that's 15 cubic feet per minute. Balunos is not going to supply that. It only supplies 10 unless you boost it. And that's a very expensive way to go. So are there small HRV systems that you do like for tiny houses? There are very few. Panasonic has had one. It's like built into a bath fan, right? No, it's it's a separate. It's just, it's sort of like a an HRV, but it doesn't have so much the energy-saving features. It The thing with a bath fan or, or a range hood or any kind of exhaust fan is it's blowing air out. And where's that air coming in? It's coming in your gaps and cracks. Who knows where? Right. Or is it, is the bath fan sucking fresh air through the range hood that's not running and vice versa? Which it could be. You could also install some passive air inlets if that's the case. Or if you don't, it could be depressurizing the house, which. If you have a wood stove, that's a problem. You need combustion air for the wood stove. If you have any sort of a space heater that requires combustion air from inside, which I wouldn't recommend, it's going to backfire. It's going to be backdrafting. Yeah. Um, so Panasonic do does have one that's, I think it's 20 CFM continuous. It's pretty easy to mount. You can mount it on a ceiling. They've recently come out with a little bigger unit that's actually an HRV. So there's, there are some Panasonic is do has some new options that I think could be viable for for tiny houses. Nice. So if you were kind of asked to design a tiny house for this cold winter climate you know, design the ventilation system from scratch, you would include an HRV, correct? If I could. Yeah. And if you do that, though, the idea is it can you, if you, if possible, you want to duct to the sleeping areas and take it away from the living areas. So put the fresh air into the sleeping area and take the stale air from the living area. Yeah. Why is that? Because you spend you tend to spend most of your time sleeping in in the bedroom. Okay, so that's where you want the fresh air. That's where you want the fresh air. See, I would have thought it would be the opposite that you're you're breathing a lot in that bedroom area, so you want to get that stale air out. Well, if you're pumping fresh air in, it's pushing the stale air out, circulating it back to your living space. Sure. When um, 
HRA, a heating refrigeration air, air industry, um, industry of, of Canada, has actually very comprehensive standards, and they recommend going room by room, which you don't necessarily have in a tiny house. And in each room that you put a supply, you should have to have some means of that coming back. That could be making sure that the door is undercut enough to allow that to flow back to your ventilator system. In a tiny house, it doesn't need to be as critical. And you don't really, probably don't even need to duct it right to, just have your HRV centrally located so one side is pushing fresh air, push that towards the, the bedroom and the stale air is coming from the other. And then, of course, you'll have two other connections to outside. Right. And with the volume of air that a tiny house would need, you're talking a very small unit, which many of these HRVs, you can get the smaller ones, you can get a concentric terminal outside. So basically, it's two pipes in one. You have one penetration, and they're separated enough that at the lower flows that you're using, you're taking the fresh air from one side and blowing the stale air out the other, and you only have one thing sticking out the side. That's nice. Well, Brad, um, I want to thank you so much. You, I feel like I could, I could pump you for information about all this stuff all, all night. Um, one thing I like to ask my guests is, um, do you have any book recommendations on these topics, you know, of ventilation, um, humidity, insulation, you know, what do you recommend people do to learn more about these topics? Boy, you caught me off guard. Um, nothing on the, I don't have anything on the top of my head. Um, they could take a course at yes tomorrow with you. Um, we have a, we have, well, there's a couple that might be related. There's a building science course. Um, there's a super insulation course designed more towards standard construction. Um, I, I really can't think of any books off the top of my head, particularly for this kind of a topic um, that I've really encountered. All right. Well, Brad Cook, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. This was great. You're welcome. Thank you so much to Brad Cook for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes from today's episode at thetinyhouse.net slash 128. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 128. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.